bitch is bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erica, and Amy and Aaron continue to abandon me. But this week, we have a guest host for you. Welcome, David Muscrop. Hello. So, Alberta. Alberta, oh yeah. Oh, golly. So, so um, um, I, I think people know this, but some people don't. I grew up in Alberta. I am Albertan. Um, in Edmonton, which we will talk about later because Edmonton's having its own little problems. But uh, Alberta headed to the polls last Tuesday to elect a new provincial government. Jason Kenney was elected premier and his United Conservative Party took control of the provincial legislature with 63 seats to the NDP's 24 um, the NDP had formed government in Alberta in 2015 for the first time due to the entitlement and cronyism of the previous progressive conservative government, plus uh, vote splitting on the right. Uh, we know about um, Daniel Smith and her Alberta Wild Rose Party, mm-hmm. who had split the votes on the right and who um, connected with or merge, sorry, with the progressive conservatives to form the UCP. So um, the progressive conservative government of uh, the previous iteration had run the province for 44 years, but a struggling economy based on oil and the NDP's inability to get a pipeline built or even negotiated affected their ability to gain re-election. The UCP pledged to cut the small business tax rate and the corporate tax rate. It plans to maintain the new $15 minimum wage, but cut it to $13 for workers under the age of 17, pledged to aggressively pursue every pipeline project, including Keystone XL, Trans Mountain, and Revive Energy East and Northern Gateway. To get Trans Mountain approved, Jason Kenney said he would enact Bill 12 and, quote, turn off the taps, unquote, to B.C. The UCP plans to scrap the provincial carbon tax and replace it with the Technology Innovation and Emissions Reductions Plan. They will also throw out a new education curriculum and roll back protections for gay students. On the environment, the UCP will stop any coal phase-out activities because jobs, jobs, jobs. And finally, Jason Kenney's election means that Canada no longer has any female premiers. We're now joined by Tyler Dawson, a National Post reporter in Edmonton, to help us make sense of what the fuck happened last week. So, Tyler, welcome. Thanks for having me on. So, um, can you take us through, um, what the fuck happened? <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, first of all, did the NDP have a shot in hell? Um, probably not. I mean, that's, I'm saying that though, with, you know, the benefit of hindsight, certainly they thought they had a shot, um, mm. you know, to the extent that I kind of, I couldn't help but think when I was covering them the last sort of week of the campaign, it was like, do you guys know something that the rest of us don't like, 
is your is your internal polling completely out of whack with what everyone else is saying? So that part was actually kind of confusing to me. Um, but at the end of the day, no, I don't think they did. And and incumbent governments, I don't think ever really do when you're dealing with sort of a prolonged economic slowdown. Um, I, th- I think that was sort of the fundamental issue here outside of all of the other things that happened in this election. It was sort of like no incumbent government is going to do well when unemployment is you know, the highest it's been in, I don't know, maybe 10 years probably. So I think that was, I think maybe the NDP underestimated that. I think maybe the UCP struck the right chord on that. Um, but no, at the end of the day, I don't know if they did have a chance. Well, it's funny because I heard Jason Kenney and um, I found him, <laughs> I hate to say it, very convincing. Um this man is a seasoned politician. Like that's the other thing. I don't think that people that he, at least on this side of the country, I don't think he got a lot of credit for being that seasoned politician for, for being able to kind of grasp a a mounting tension in the, in the province and to be able to translate that into a cohesive campaign fraud or not you know what i mean yeah so yeah i I think there's something to that and i think he also did i would say a relatively good job of harnessing that sort of frustration and anger without really giving into it um yeah i talked to him a couple weeks ago in calgary and he said look i'm trying to provide a positive federalist alternative to alberta's place within confederation and we are one charismatic leader away from a separation referendum so I think he did a better job maybe of wooing sort of moderate voters than uh, than he's maybe given credit for because a lot of the news coverage focused on the gay-straight alliance stuff and the social socially conservative politics side of things, which is, I think, a struggle that any conservative leader has to deal with. Um, yeah. But on the economy and on the relationship with Ottawa, I think he walked a really, really precise line whether or not one thinks that's smart or good policy or whatever. Well, I don't think it's good policy. I just think it's good. It's really good campaigning and really good politics. I just, I just think he's, he's a damn good politician. And, you know, most of the news coverage I've seen here has not really recognized that even though this guy was in federal, was in federal cabinet for what eight years or four years at least. But he can be he can afford to be potty trained, right? I mean, the sense that what was the combined Wild Rose PC support last time around was roughly what fifty two, fifty three percent, something like that. Mm-hmm. A United Right was pulling somewhere around the same popular support. You've effectively got it in the bag at that point, and so you don't have to be desperate. You can you can be restrained, right? I mean, you've got half of the popular support. This is, you know, my friends uh, who support proportional representation are now in a tough bind because this is a proper majority government in this country now, right? Mm-hmm. With, with the, with the, the, what you're talking about is, is he also got the popular vote. Yeah. He's got, he's got the structure of Alberta politics back. Right? Yeah. You got half the people supporting you. Yeah. You don't really have to, to go fishing. That's fair. 
That's fair. Um, I feel like the NDP were an experiment. <laughs> they were a protest vote. They were a protest vote for sure. I, um, I actually would dispute that a little bit. Um, I think I think they were a protest vote in 2015. Sure, but the, the well, sorry, that's what I meant. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, but yeah. but the fact that the popular the the percentage of the popular vote that they got this time around, um, I think, was higher, considerably higher, maybe than what they got in 2015. So over the last four years, they managed to pick up support in a way that was, that went, I think far beyond just being a protest vote. Um, and that, that does sort of raise the question of whether or not Alberta's now got a, you know, a two party system um, and sort of a resilient opposition. So I think time will tell a little bit on that. And I think it's very dependent on whether or not Rachel Notley sticks around for another four years. But uh, I think the NDP if it started as a protest vote, certainly has evolved into um, a, leg- a party with sort of legitimate support in the province. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's good. It um, is good. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really good because like basically for most of the 20th century, Alberta has had one party. Yeah. And the last time there was um, like, I have to phrase this carefully because it's a dis- it's a very dis- easily disputed point. Otherwise, this is the largest official opposition right after the election since I think 1993 when the Liberals were the opposition. So, I mean, you had more uh, Wild Rose and PC members of the legislature, but it was not the official opposition. So, sort of, no matter how you slice it, this is a, a significant official opposition with a relatively deep um relatively deep experience so it's, it's going to be an interesting four years for sure so how would you compare that to say the ndp in in ontario uh the provincial party yes the provincial party yes in terms of opposition and its ability to mount sort of like a true oppositional framework i guess you could say right um I am to be honest with you. I I left it the perfect time to have no idea what's going on in Ontario politics. So, <laughs> but as a white male, I'm happy to speculate widely on that. Um, but I, I think I guess what I would say about Alberta, because I I mean I do know a little bit about that, is that I mean the sort of structure of a majority government means that there isn't really very much they can do in terms of voting and things like that. They certainly can rabble rouse. They'll have research budgets. Um, they're probably going to have some staff retention issues and things like that in the coming weeks when people are deciding what to do with their lives. But they'll, they have, I think, a, enough of a presence to get a lot of media attention to mount significant opposition research and get leaks and file access to information requests and all those sort of um, auxiliary things that a, an effective opposition needs to do. And the other thing is that Rachel Notley is really popular. She, I mean, up in, for much of the election campaign, she was polling um, above Jason Kenney. Like when people were asked who who is more suited to be premier, who would be a better premier, she was a little bit ahead of him in the polling. And that's oh, her, really? Yeah, and, and it wasn't you know super significant. We're talking a couple percentage points here, and by the end, it had narrowed to sort of a statistically insignificant difference. But but she is much more popular than the New Democrats are. So it, it, as long as she is around. Um, you know, they're, they're a party, I think that people are going to keep an eye on and pay attention to when she speaks. 
in terms of policy now, mm-hmm. um, what can we expect from Jason Kenney? Like, is he seriously going through with this um, minimum wage cut under the age of 17? How is that even constitutional? What's going on? I don't have an answer to whether or not it's constitutional. Um, it is, though, I think, policy in some other countries. Um, I want to say Norway or something, but I'm actually not sure. Um, I mean, the idea behind it strikes me as sound. Uh, if if you have good evidence that people under the age of or youth, minors, whatever, are not being hired because of the minimum wage increase, um, there might be an argument in favor of lowering their wage in the interest of getting them into the workforce. I can see how one could make that argument. Whether or not it's constitutional is a great question, and I have zero idea. Um, But, uh, you know, on the flip side, I think back to my first job when I made $7.09 an hour. So, you know, maybe I'm not not as sympathetic as I should be to all the kids today who are going to be making, you know, 13 (laughs) bucks or whatever. But he does plan on going through with it. That's that is true, and I think there is a relatively good economic case um, for a lower minimum wage. Um, Maybe not a very good sort of social policy case, but uh, I think there is a case in terms of getting more people into the workforce and also keeping consumer costs down. I mean, I know for sure that my my dog daycare went up, but a hundred dollars a month because of the minimum wage increase. and that's something I can survive. But these are, you know, people live within margins that are affected by these minimum wage increases, I think. Whether or not costs come down as a result of a reduction for a subset of the population, I don't know. But, you know, it's it's a thing, I think. Well, first of all, that would assume that, you know, the cost or the difference in the cost will be passed on in terms of savings to the consumer. That's not necessarily true. Um, because, you know, you could actually, what I'm saying is it doesn't always trickle down to the consumer. Number two, I find it a slippery slope when you start connecting wage with something other than skill set. Um, it opens up a whole lot of, of arguments for making different for, I guess, opening up a wage inequality issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, uh, I'm f- what I'm concerned with is that for jobs that are entry-level or low-skilled that might be um, occupied by people other than those under 17 – maybe new Canadians, for example, um, that companies are going to switch them out for younger people because the cost is lower and not necessarily pass that on to the consumer. So you lose on both ends. That's my concern. Yeah, I think I think that's a legitimate concern. And I don't really have a counterpoint to that, to be honest with you. I'm 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 a little unclear on what you know, the overall purpose of this is or, or what industries it's going to affect. Um, so I think it'll, it'll take a little bit of time maybe before something like this 
shakes out. But uh, yeah, and I mean, it's it's also like, it's the sort of question of whether or not it's better to have people working at a lower wage or unemployment at a higher wage kind of thing. So, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's hard. I, I think it's hard to say how it'll shake out, but I mean, I'm not an economist. So there's, I'm sure there, you know, is research on all these things, but I'm just, you know, I'm not super familiar with it. Gotcha. So, uh, pipelines, mm. how about them? How about them? <laughs> <laughs> We have a whole litany of stuff I thought were dead. Okay, Keystone. What? Where? Where? Where are we with Keystone? I like the last I heard about Keystone is that President Obama said no when he was president. Mm-hmm. I, I guess Trump, who wants to basically reverse everything Obama ever touched, I'm sure that's on his list. Um, I thought Energy East was dead. Because because doesn't that have to isn't that the pipeline that has to run through Quebec? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I th- I think Energy East is dead. I mean, I don't know. I don't totally understand why that one keeps coming back up. To be honest with you, um, it's don't don't you think it's like just a wedge to to distance one from Quebec? Yeah, I think it is. Uh, I think it's a it's an easy sort of fight to pick. Um, mm-hmm. I mean. Keystone is the construction still going, but there is a dispute in Nebraska. Maybe, um, anyways, it's there's you know there's uh, some court injunctions going on involving Montana. Um, so that's sort of that one's shaking out a little bit before the court still in the United States. But it is mm-hmm. you know as far as anyone's aware, it's it's still viable and it's still underway as far as i know northern gateway and energy east are essentially dead trans mountain well the deadline deadline just got extended for cabinet to make that decision um and then the other one that's sort of percolating in the background here is eagle spirit um which is the the what eagle spirit is the pipeline owned by a consortium of first nations uh oh really yeah and it sort of i believe it tracks along the same route as northern gateway or give or take um you know so that there's there's that one too and in theory in theory that should avoid some of the um shall we say disagreements or issues affecting some of those other pipelines going through indigenous land so you know that but that's part of Jason Kenney's like overall sort of energy strategy right is that he in part of the, like there's a lot of focus on his war room operation as like attacking environmental activists and things like that but there is another side of this which is a basically a litigation fund to help pro resource development first nations get projects done and and there's also the the I can't remember the exact name of it the aboriginal investment office or something like that that is backstopping loans of up to a billion dollars i think on on sort of development projects and resource projects on indigenous land so there there's a large component of his strategy that involves energy in first nations communities um because you do have you, you know you have a handful of first nations that um really got involved in the oil boom and you know made scads of money off of it so there's a there are a lot of pro-resource First Nations in Alberta um, that he hopes to sort of 
mobilize is maybe the right word, encourage investment. Um, and, and I think he sees it and the government sees it. And I think certainly a lot of Albertans see it actually as if you get more indigenous ownership of these projects, you might be able to sidestep um, some of the objections going through British Columbia with these projects. Now that might not pan out, but uh, it, you know, maybe strikes me as worth a shot. What happens to Kenny, to the UCP, and to these projects if the global price of of energy, specifically um, oil, either stays low or drops? I mean, if, what happens if you know effectively the next five years are five years of declining oil prices when people are projecting for the next thirty years? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think they're going to be in trouble. I mean, I, I think there's the question in Alberta right now of whether or not we are going to return to like the outrageous boom times of, Mm. you know, 2014. And I think there's, I wouldn't say it's a consensus, but I think there's a, there's a consciousness of the fact that it's not going to get back to that point, but that there is a point where these, I mean, these projects are still mostly profitable and worth doing. And, and sorry, say that again, these projects are still what? Mostly profitable and worth doing. Like, like business is not, you know, shutting down in the oil sands tomorrow and, and piecing out. So I think there is the the sense that there is, even with a decline in oil prices, there's still sort of a longer term viability for these projects and, and, and bitumen from the oil sands. Um, so I think that's sort of the long game. If you, if you can get the industry to a point where a lot of the other roadblocks are removed, like market access and things like that, you will be insulated a little bit from these price issues in the sense that it'll still be a viable investment. It'll still be a sustainable industry, um, even if it's not as wildly profitable as it was a decade ago, if that makes sense. But certainly, if you know if the economy doesn't turn around, if unemployment doesn't drop, if household incomes don't come back up, um, he's going to have a a bit of a fight ahead of him in the next election because what are you what are you going to tell people when you I mean he's promised the moon right yeah so he's like gonna... it seems like a risky it seems like a risky strategy in general um but you know I mean I guess with a boom and bust economy which which is my entire argument with Alberta like I get it Alberta I get you okay but my entire argument is this is deja vu, right? I mean, Alberta has been through this before. One would think that when the good times came again, that there wouldn't be this selective amnesia as to as to what went wrong the last time. And this is my entire problem, is that in 2009, and I will be the first to say, look, Alberta was exactly the reason that Canada didn't see, like it insulated Canada from a lot of the negative effects of the global financial crisis. I will say that, no problem, okay? But here's my problem, is that when things were good and when there was a conservative federal government, where was all this, where was all this you know, rigor or, or energy put towards pipelines and so on and so forth. I don't understand. Yeah. I mean, I think there was some of it, but I think at the time, I think there was the sense that 
these things weren't going to go totally sideways. Um, I mean, like Trans Mountain's a good example. Like that is, I think a lot of Albertans were kind of like totally shell shocked when this was controversial because there's already a line going through there. We're just, it's just an expansion. It's just being twinned, I think. So yeah. you would, I mean, you know what I mean? And then even Northern Gateway runs along or along a similar route to an existing natural gas pipeline. So I think there was a, a the real sense that this stuff wasn't controversial. And like, obviously oil sands development is controversial, whatever, but that pipelines were not controversial because if it's not going by pipe, it's going by truck and train, both of which are way, way, way more dangerous than a pipeline. Um, so I think that's sort of where I think there was a little, people were a little bit blindsided by the real objections to these things. Um, and the Trudeau government, you know, coming in and saying, oh, we have to shut down the oil sands. And like, there were some major, major energy missteps, I think, from this, this government right in the beginning that sort of people went, oh, God, maybe this isn't as obvious as we I thought see. it was. That's, that's certainly my sense. Um, you know, I think you can certainly fault the federal government um, under Stephen Harper, maybe for getting not as many of these things built as they might have. But I think even then there was the sense that you had to tread carefully, you had to do consultations with indigenous communities and things like that um or else they were never going to get built but but i but there is has been a certain hostility from the federal liberals towards these projects i mean northern gateway was was canned um by the trudeau government so oh that's right yeah so you know there is i think there's a lot of blame to be laid at the, the at the feet of the feds on this one okay so let's get into the feds then. Mm. Um, how does this election play out for them, especially policy-wise and um, in terms of getting these projects built too? And of course, politically. Yeah. Um, I mean, so there. the thing that has struck me throughout all of this is that no matter what the Alberta government did under Rachel Notley, whatever they do now under Jason Kenney, I mean, it's still sort of, out of their hands. I mean, this is a federal issue. The, the approval of Trans Mountain is with federal cabinet. Um, and I think they, how should I phrase this? The federal government, I think, needs to be conscious of the fact that Jason Kenney has promised to cause all kinds of problems if these things don't get built. So in, in terms of policy, I mean, there isn't, as far as I'm concerned, anyways, a great policy argument against Trans Mountain. Um, and as long as they've done their consultations properly and have buy-in and things like that, I mean, there's no real reason to reject it. Now, whether or not you've protests along the pipeline route ends up being another question, but so that's the big one there. I mean, they also, we all own it now, like like, we're paying for it. So but on the protest note, I mean, I'm looking at this and thinking if I'm a federal liberal, I do not want shovels in the ground before the election because I don't want pictures of the RCMP arresting protesters and indigenous people. If we face Oka uh, times a thousand, Mm -hmm. I mean, the protest thing is interesting to me because it seems to me that that is the ultimate roadblock at the end of the day is that people have said, we will put our lives on the line. We will lay down in front of, of earth uh, movers. We will lay down in front of shovels and, and construction workers to prevent this. 
you know, do you think that this has the potential to become something like Oka, but but far worse if if there's a you know clash between protesters, indigenous people, and mm-hmm. and construction workers and the police? Yeah, and I recall Jim Carr sort of flippantly suggesting that they would bring the army in at some point, right? Yeah, that's always a good look. Yeah. 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 I think that is an electoral issue for the liberals and a policy issue for the liberals. Um, On the other hand, we are a country of laws and you don't get to break them is, is maybe where it comes. I mean, a conservative government, I think would make that argument that the courts have said, this is fine. The government's approved it. We've done all these things. People need to get out of the way. We can't have people violating the law to protest. So do I think there's going to be wide ranging sympathy for protesters? Um, to some extent, yes, but on the other hand, no, but you're right. It's a terrible look. And certainly I think the liberals would prefer that a conservative government be the one sending the RCMP in. Um, so I don't know. It, it, it is bad. It is awkward. It is difficult. And that did not get as much attention probably as it deserved during this election, because the idea was that the courts were going to, handle this federal cabinet was going to approve it and then it would get built um and i don't know what the government does if if there are big big protests i mean what else do you do other than arrest a bunch of people and get it built and that's not ideal for anyone Hmm. so um how problematic can kenny be for trudeau uh quite problematic i think um for starters, he plans on fighting the federal carbon tax in court. So the very first bill when the legislature returns in the fir- no, third week sorry, of May is going to be to repeal Alberta's carbon tax, um, which then means that the federal backstop kicks in. Kenny has mm-hmm. promised to fight that in court. Um, and we've already seen sort of the groundwork of how he's going to fight that because there, the UCP was an intervener in the Saskatchewan reference case and in the Ontario one as well. Um, so there's that. There is also the issue of the referendum on equalization, which is contingent, mind you, on the pipeline on Trans Mountain being built. So, you know, it's unclear when that would happen or if it'll happen even. Um, and he is, Jason Kenney is of the mind that if there is a referendum and Albertans vote to, you know, renegotiate place within confederation or whatever it ends up being he's of the opinion that this um means that the federal government is obliged to sit down at the table with alberta and i think this is a an idea developed by ted morton way back in the day um i don't know if that is you know a fair characterization of what has to happen in this but but certainly he has the bully pulpit sort of rabble rouse against these things and i think the other thing that jason kenny is symbolizes a little bit here is there has been a sweep of provincial governments by conservative parties. I mean, I think you have a, well, you have the NDP in BC, and then you might have a liberal government in Nova Scotia, maybe PEI, maybe well, PEI is an election right now. So anyways, PEI looks like it's going to end up with a green government. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, I saw that. I was just like, <laughs> Wow, they have no faith in any of the parties. No, yeah. And, yeah, like <laughs> but that's what it says to me is that is that people are just sick of the same old outcome with the same old whether they go conservative or liberal, it doesn't matter. 
And I can totally see that taking hold. Whether the conservatives or liberals win the federal election, yes, there are specific consequences, but the liberals are tracking right anyway with policy. So I'm just wondering, again, like, I, I think like a lot of people are just fucking tired. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm so very tired. But Tyler, I, I'm curious, Tyler, what you think about this sort of moral suasion argument from, from Kenny, where they say, look, we're going to hold a referendum and you, the federal government will be bound by it. Now, I don't think they're going to be legally bound by it. I've seen good arguments to suggest, in fact, that they won't, but there could be a moral suasion mm-hmm. argument that, you know, the, pro- the provinces express their will. But isn't that what they did with with senators and they said, look, we're going to elect these senators and then you're obliged to appoint them. And the federal government sort of said, we know what we're going to do, what we please. Thank you very much. (laughs) Your constitution is very clear. I mean, I wonder to what extent people are going to say, they're going to dig into the intricacies of constitutionality and say, well, we really think you ought to obey the provinces rather than just say, "Uh, we're just going to keep trying to get through our days. Yeah. I, I think the wisdom in maybe listening to the provinces is not so much whether or not it, whether they are, constitutionally obliged to do these things but but what the sort of consequences are i mean if albertans vote overwhelmingly for some sort of renegotiation on on equalization and the government says "Eh, no i mean you're gonna have a lot of angry people um and that is not a good thing i mean there is there is this sort of rising wave of separatist sentiment and i think it's mostly overblown but I mean, in, in two years time, if you don't have economic recovery, if you don't have a pipeline built, if you say still have a liberal government in Ottawa, who says, no, we're not going to, we're not going to sit down with you guys. Um, there, I think are some consequences of that that are not going to be pleasant for anybody involved. So I think that's really, I mean, even if it's symbolic only, you know what I mean? I think the federal government is, there's a good case that they need to sort of handle this um, fairly carefully. Now, the other thing is that at the end of the day, this is almost exclusively about, you know, banging the drum because the idea I think of the equalization renegotiation is that you would take, uh, energy resource revenue out of the equation. Now, even if you do that, Alberta is still paying in the most to equalization out of all provinces because wages are considerably higher here than everywhere else. So, at the end of the day, no matter what happens, I'm not sure you see a substantive change in how Alberta is handling equalization. Um, and then the other thing, of course, that is sort of percolating in the background of all of this is there seems to be this shift bef- towards discussing equalization as a means to run a, not a very efficient government, as a means to run big deficits and provide big government services. Um, instead of maybe being more financially prudent. And that's, I don't think, the intention of equalization. Now, that's maybe how Quebec has used it. Mm. But um, it, it is weird to see Alberta, Alberta's politicians sort of venerating Quebec as a, you know, a way to approach the federal government and a way to want, run your province's finances. And, you know, that is very much at odds with the way I remember people talking about Alberta and Quebec growing up. So I, I am perplexed and interested in this whole thing. I, um, so here's the thing. I'm wondering what, how connected are these conservative governments in, a, in, in the provinces? Like, 
Here's my theory. I think that Trudeau has been severely weakened by this SNC scandal. And I just wonder how how much they're going to come for him and how much of sort of like an alliance Kenny and Ford have made. And of course, then you have the foot soldiers, Scott Moe and the other one. What's what's the Manitoba dude? Brian Foster. Yeah. Well, you know, like nobody cares about Scott Moe. Like, let's be honest. Uh, Nationally. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, that's the way I see this band here, this band of brothers. And I do mean brothers. (laughs) Yeah. So I think... So two things. I mean, first of all, I actually think that the SNC-Lavalin scandal is mainly a bubble scandal, um, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. Okay, fair. That, yeah. And I don't I don't have, you know, a great way of backing that up other than it's like it's very inside baseball, I think, with lobbyists. No, I think you're whatever. right. I think you're I think you're totally right. The public has moved on. It's only the rest of us who are in Ottawa or Toronto or whatever or in the the. Um, it's only Upper Canada that cares. Yeah. <laughs> Let's be honest. Yeah. A, a Laurentian elite scandal kind of thing. Yes, yes. I think other exactly. people have have bigger concerns, maybe. So, and also, yeah. I mean, if I'm perfectly frank, voters certainly in Western Canada just assume that the federal government is, if it's a liberal government, is going to do scandalous things to help Quebec corporations. Like, you know, I think that's just like, oh, the liberals are back; they're going to be pandering to corporations in Quebec and it's going to be dicey, but that's how the liberals roll. So I think there's an element of that. Um, as to this old boys or new boys club that is developing, one of the things that came out on the campaign trail was Jason Kenney saying very, very clearly that he was going to campaign to get Andrew Shear elected. And they had a rally a couple days before the election. I think it was Thursday night, maybe before the vote. Um, and that, I think, is a bit of a problem for Trudeau because... A bit. A bit, yeah. <laughs> because no matter how popular or unpopular Andrew Scheer is, I think Jason Kenney is pretty popular and and is he's a good speaker and he's a good rabble-rouser. Um, so I think him appearing on the campaign trail with Andrew Scheer might cause some problems for Trudeau. I mean... Trudeau is not going to pick up very many votes, if any, in Alberta and in Saskatchewan in the next election. Right. So what is going to happen to him in Quebec and Ontario, I think, are the big questions. Um, and yeah. if you have a known quantity like Jason Kenney out on the campaign trail in, in Ontario, um, yeah. I would not be super happy if I was Trudeau. So I think there is this, I don't think it's much of a concerted sort of policy agenda. Like, on the carbon tax thing, there is some coordination between provinces and between Kenny and Ford. Like there was overlap between staffers and they were discussing their legal angles and all that kind of stuff over the summer. So there is a little bit of that. But I think at the end of the day for Trudeau come October, it's uh, how does he stand up to these popular conservative politicians who are going to be stumping for Andrew Scheer? And they're seasoned. Yeah. Like... Well, like Doug Ford, on the other hand, though, is, well, you mentioned Kenny, right? Who is the anti-Ford in yeah. a lot of ways, right? Because he's he's behaved. Yeah. Ford, I think, yeah. if, he, if he tries to back Sheer, I'm not convinced he's going to do a lot of good. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. 
You might want him to stay yeah. home. Yes. <laughs> He's not yes. super well liked with Doug Ford in Ontario. I mean, all his numbers started to slip immediately yeah. after he was elected. And he also he was out here appearing with Jason Kenney at a carbon tax rally, and he's also just flat out not a very good public speaker. Um <laughs> I mean he's You don't say. <laughs> I mean he hasn't been in politics for very long, so I mean this is an acquired skill, I think. But uh yeah. you know, as like the hype man for a politician, he's like I don't know. Not that impressive. And mm-hmm. and is it really a good look when Ontario like flies in to Alberta to stump? Like I just don't really like it just I feel like it's 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 a bit like you know, when I was like in Alberta, everybody's always like those fucking Easterners basically who take us for granted. Right? Yeah, the Eastern creeps and bums. Um Exactly. By the way, I still call Ontario the East. I know Ontario is all yeah. ew, we're central. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like Manitoba Central. I, anyway, <laughs> once I moved to British Columbia, I started calling Ontario the East, and everyone. Yeah, that's what you do when you when you're in the West. Yeah, because it, it's the East. Anything east of Manitoba. Is Thank east. you. Yeah, yeah. This makes good. Oh yeah. my gosh! I learned that. I mean, I'm from Ontario, but I learned that eight years. In I just Columbia. realized we're very Western in here yeah. today. I became Western alienated when I lived in, in British Columbia. I, I finally understood. Yeah. Like, you know, the, the federal election was over before the pizza and beer showed up. <laughs> you know, I I get it. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. So so anyway, um you Tyler or not, sorry, David. <laughs> I'm yeah. mixing up my white juice. <laughs> Call me Tad. Tad. <laughs> Wait a minute. Oh my gosh, that was a name on a show, like a daytime show. What is it? All my children? Anyway, whatever. There was a Tad poll. Anyway, um, you wanted to, and we also always want to talk about the lack of female representation. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was one of the biggest stories coming out of this election was that we no longer have any female premiers. I mean, Christy Clark, like, I'm happy that she's gone. (laughs) You know, why she ends up on CBC is beyond me. But whatever. The same reason that um, Sheila Copps does, I would imagine. And Conrad Black. Oh, no, that's CTV. (laughs) Oh, anyway. um, But I found it. uh, Here's... (laughs) I just I remember the McLean's cover of mm. the resistance. That's what I remember. Nope. Can't say that I do. <laughs> That's a long time you, McLean's. I, you know, I, was, I was away that you ask Paul Wells what he was thinking. No, I made a joke. I made a joke about that cover to the effect that it looked like a bad advertisement for a law firm. Right? <laughs> it like, does. Yeah. Blue tie, blue tie, blue tie, tall blue tie, and blue tie. Yeah. A bunch of white dudes wearing dark suits and blue ties. Exactly. I mean, it was, it was and this is the resistance. We were just it like, what the fuck? You know, it's I too bad. Like, though. Yeah. I, I, in defense of that, it, you know, the substantive point was a good one, that there was a conservative. It's exactly what we've been talking about. Yeah. There was a conservative yeah. resistance that which was is, Which is why. the cover it, was not very But good. the cover obviously yeah. did its job because I'm bringing it up now yeah. as a, a visual. good at covers in that sense. That yeah. They dragged often for them. Yeah. But they, they know what they're doing. Yeah, I figured. Yeah. Paul. And the piece was substantive. The piece was quite good. Otherwise. I didn't read the piece. Yeah. I <laughs> this, yeah, that is the risk. That is the risk. Yeah. I didn't want to read the piece after I saw the cover. The 
Yeah. But the piece was correct. I mean, and it's what we've been talking <laughs> what, about. There what was, did the piece say? That there was a rising conservative resistance to the liberals that was going to that was going to cause Trudeau some trouble. That was b- backed by another things, the carbon tax. I said this a year ago. Nobody called me. I don't know. Well, I I'm just saying, I tell your bosses. I would have called you that we we write to. I'm just saying, plug plug. I would have called. You. I would have called you. I would love to see you in those pages. I am all. Thank you. I'm all for shameless self promotion on I, my own be. podcast. Damn it, you should be. I, if I can be useful, <laughs> I'm just saying. I, I, I want. I will pitch you my Game of Thrones. I want to get irritated <laughs> about this thing. So I got into a fight with with someone on the internet, as one does. Uh, after on this, Twitter about yeah because you know the line there's a bit of a controversy here but effectively no female premier has served two full terms in a row we can quibble about the wording but it's effectively you know women premiers don't get reelected in this country Christy Clark gets an asterisk but the fact that she needs an asterisk is perfectly indicative of the, of the problem my argument was you can't take any single election Kathleen Wynne Rachel Notley and say you lost because you're a woman full stop right but what you can say is why is it that men get asked to run, men put their hand up to run, men uh, are predominantly those who run, men tend to win, men tend to win again? I mean, clearly there's a structural problem there that we can look at and say that exists whether or not any one you know, election is about gender. In the same way that we can look at extreme weather and say, you can't say that storm was climate change, but you can see a pattern that's a problem. And that's what bothered me about the election was that, okay, but plainly we just don't have enough women in positions of power structurally, Right. And and this is the thing. And here here is my problem in terms of the way it's posed. So did you watch do you watch that issue? Oh, yeah. Okay. so Mm -hmm. did you see the last one when they were talking about the Alberta election? So one of the questions uh, Rosemary Barton was brought up this issue of women and women like the fact that they're, you know, no more female premiers and, um, you know, the the oh my god uh-huh. this is why i'm like andrew uh-huh. coin needs to stay in his lane as well as chantelle as well as whoever and this is he they're very good at political procedure mm-hmm. you know judicial pro- procedure mm-hmm. they're very good at that i want to hear that from them all yeah. day long and the ins and outs of what's the going on ins and the outs and what's got yeah. but when it comes to social issues Step aside, okay? Because it's obvious that you don't understand what the fuck is going on. And this is the thing. The way we talk about it, it's as though the only expression of bias or discrimination or whatever is one that's overt. It's one where people are going into the voting booth and say, I won't vote for you because you're a woman. That is a very narrow definition. And just because something is not, it may not be the issue, doesn't mean that it's not an issue. And that is what, because they were just falling all over themselves, dismissing the notion that Canadian society could be, could could think of women differently than men and not in a positive light. It is empirically demonstrably true that people do that in this country, yeah. in the United States, in the United Kingdom. In fact, we just this is a, ask any political scientist who spent five minutes in the literature, they will tell you that it's true. And there's a great book um, by Tally Mendelberg called The Race Card, where she talks about this in relation to Ooh. race. 
It is a fantastic book. Highly recommend it. Her point is that we make implicit, we're implicitly biased when it comes to race. The same is true of gender. When you call it out explicitly, people back off. Mm-hmm. When they, if, you, if you basically say, don't vote for this person because she's a woman, people say, well, no, 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 no. But if you say things like, well, this is the more competent candidate. Yes. Right? It is an implicit bias. And, and that's the problem is that our structures are implicitly biased against, among other um, groups, women. That's mm-hmm. just demonstrably true. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I mean, more political scientists in the public. They need to leave their layers and come out into the public. Get some vitamin D. You guys need to be on Twitter so we can I'm read trying. this shit. I'm trying. Like, I'm just saying. Political scientists. The, the intellectual thought is on Twitter. We all know this. Yeah. There's a new generation that are taking up more space um, led by, I actually happen to think led by uh, a group of, of young folks and, and women. Uh, and I think it's going to change. But the sort of old school political scientists who won't ever come down to the Piraeus to talk to people, uh, they, they got them. <laughs> I'm looking forward to them, let's say, well, retiring. Well, it's retiring. the same thing in economics. Tyler, we still know oh, you're yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Chat away. I'm, I'm, yeah, enjoying yeah, listening away. I'm, I'm enjoying listening to this. <laughs> so it's the same thing with economics. In economics, it is that structural old boys club. Mm-hmm. Um, most women leave within, uh, 10 years. Um, and you know, but there's this new group of growing economists looking at the structural biases within economics Mm -hmm. and really talking and really speaking to that. So if you ask an old school economics, oh, is economics like, by saying, no, we have female economics. What are you talking about? They're right there. And this is what we do. We're like, oh, look, look at Sally over there yeah. in, in accounting or, you know, like, yeah. like there's no way we could be X, Y, and Z because the, 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 I, what they said was that the number of the proportion of people who go into the voting booth saying, I'm not going to vote for her because she's a woman is extremely low. And mm-hmm. I'm like, where the fuck have you been? Mm-hmm. Are you serious? Are you people fucking serious right now? Do you not see what's going on? Open your fucking eyes. Like I was just, I was, I was just in, I was enraged and I was just like, I was like, see Erica, this is why you don't listen to Andrew Coyne or Chantal Hebert on things outside their specific lanes because the, the old, there's this generation that just doesn't fucking get it. And, you know, anybody who's like Gen X or older seems like not to get it. That's that I feel like this whole idea of implicit bias, the idea that discrimination works um, really stealthily and is not most discrimination is not explicit. People are not going to come out and say, oh, well, um, you know, your Asian ass. I'm looking at Aaron. Uh, is not allowed in these halls, but they'll they'll couch it in you're not a good fit. Yeah. Well, and so this is it. I mean, and this is the if the political behavior literature suggests this. Uh, again, the race card book um, by Mandelberg um, points this out. It's basically look, norms have changed. <laughs> you can't explicitly discriminate anymore based on categories such as race and gender, sexuality. It's now driven underground into implicit biases and things like who counts as competent, who counts as having authority, who counts as as being, um, you know, a rebel versus a troublemaker. Mm-hmm. You know, so we and we apply those categories differently in the context 
and, and we apply media coverage differently, et cetera, et cetera. We use different frames. We have different. We put them in different buckets, and that's how we do it. And that's how we reinforce existing power structures. Mm-hmm. And that is very, very hard to root out. And one of the ways, and this is the paradox, one of the ways you change that is by getting those folks into positions of power where they can change the structure, they can change how things are done, they can serve as role models for other people, but you've got to get them in the room, which is why we need some sort of structural change, including perhaps quotas, et cetera, et cetera, to get a foot, to get a foothold. Mm-hmm. And that's how you build that. Mm-hmm. And this is why the sort of classical liberal meritocratic egalitarian thing doesn't work Mm -hmm. because it's just demonstrably and empirically untrue so yeah because it doesn't exist yeah it doesn't like like a meritocracy does not exist it's not who we are like i don't even know where this came from i'm just like classical liberals it came from fuck them yeah (laughs) well i mean i they got some things incredible and look i mean the enlightenment was a profoundly important moment of course it was but we took us out of the of the dark ages i get that it's been 400 years but yeah it's time to move on from that is what i'm anyway sorry tyler tyler i have something that i so one of the things that I think this election has exposed a little bit in a way that's slightly different from Doug Ford and quite a bit different from Donald Trump is I think that the left is actually not super well equipped to explain things like this. Um, as it, mm-hmm. Oh my God. Oh. As in you, you guys were just talking about, I have thoughts, Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> I have so many thoughts on this. But like you guys yeah. were just talking about implicit bias and things like that. Well, how do you go up to a voter? you know, and communicate that. And I, and so the larger point I wanted to make was that um, there does not strike me in Canada as a super well-developed intellectual right. I mean, if you look at the United States, you have like Commentary Magazine, you have National Review, you have, you have... You were just talking about Buckley. William H. We had this discussion about William H. Buckley yeah. earlier. And just his intellect, it's not only his intellectual rigor, it's what he did yeah. with it, mm-hmm. right? And the style. And, and the, the style, style and yep. the fact that it needs style. So that's another thing. Yeah. But, yeah. Carry so, on. but in Canada, yeah. we don't have, I mean, who are the right wing academics in Canada that people respect? Um, oh, these days, you said respect, yeah. and I lost days? Jordan Peterson. <laughs> yeah, where's where's the well, United I mean, States? But there was there was Flanagan in the past. But who's the new? Who are the new Morton yeah, exactly. Flanagan and and not and, and those folks? And That's that is a, good a really point. that is I think a glaring gap in understanding what has happened in Alberta, what has happened in Ontario, what has happened well the rest of the country in this conservative sweep is that you have no offense to all the progressives sitting here, but you have all these progressives saying, "Oh, there you've elected these racist white supremacist lunatics." How could you? Um, and and whether or not that's you know fully accurate or not is isn't really the point. The point is that you don't have someone on the right who's able to look at this and explain it in a way that's other than oh people are angry. This is a populist uprising, and and I think that is really missing from all of the analysis on the Alberta election and and the analysis on what this is going to mean for Trudeau. I mean. Because when you ha- when you don't have an intellectual conservative right, I think you you end up ceding the ground to populism to some extent. So this is I, I that's not you know the world's most intelligent thing I've just said, but you know that that is bouncing around my mind as a phenomenon that's that's going to play out over the next year. Is where is the intellectual right, and what role could it and should it be playing 
in provincial federal relations and countering white supremacy and things like that. Um, because I think most people don't consider themselves racist or white supremacists. And, um, and I think, I think a, a line of attack from the right on these issues strikes me as a valuable thing. Um, and I, I don't know if we're seeing it, frankly. But also organizationally, I mean, it's been interesting to watch the sort of, I think, the marginalization of people like Preston mm-hmm. Manning and, and that movement, who, who in some senses moderated the worst impulses and elements of a certain variety of, of right-winger. And uh, I think there's a battle for the soul of the right happening. And I think the, the Preston Manning types of the red Tories are long gone, unfortunately, but the Preston Manning types are losing out to the rebel media mm-hmm. types to some extent. And that's it's what the same thing me. that's happening in America. Yeah. And that's but, what worries me. But America still has that intellectual foundation yeah, they have on both sides, yes. on both sides, because I'm not sure if on the left, we even have that, to be honest, like not mm-hmm. in like, I, I really don't know. We have individuals, but my big, okay. So whenever I go into like super progressive s- spaces, I'm always like, y'all are fucking up. <laughs> like, I literally do not, not necessarily in that delivery, you know, cause delivery is everything. Right. But Usually what I say is you all are fucking up. And here's the reason. Number one, you're not organized or shit. Mm -hmm. You know, number two, where the fuck is your investment in communication? How are you communicating with the people that you want voting for you? Mm -hmm. How are you spreading your message? How are you even figuring out what people's pain points are? You gone door knocking lately? Like, what are you doing to create this, this, the structure that you're going to need to be able to pass on from leader to leader to leader? Right. I mean, this is, this is my question. Where is stop with, we have the moral authority. And I feel like progressives have this idea that since they have this moral authority that they think they have, which I don't believe they do, um, that, that that somehow translates into everybody understanding that they're on the right side of these issues. And I'm like, what is that? That's nothing. You got nothing but empty space. And I, I, I feel like that's part of it. Immigration is a great example of exactly what I'm talking about. Um, I, on the weekend, I was like tweeting back and forth with Frank, Frank Graves of mm-hmm. Ecos Polling. And we were just talking about, you know, I was critiquing the poll, the questions and so on, because I know where they're trying to get to. But the idea of the polls as sort of, you know, which look racist as they are is fundamentally because nobody fucking understands immigration and progressives have done nothing to explain, to break it down a complex, complex issue Mm -hmm. to break it down in a way that is understandable and, and consumable for average people. Mm -hmm. And that's my big number one. Don't run from your ideas. 
Like people are out there saying the earth is flat and they're fine saying that in public. Why the fuck should you run from your ideas? Mm-hmm. Number two, it's true. Number two, um, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her Green New Deal all of a sudden made it up to Canada and it's a Canada Green New Deal. And I'm just like, can we not do something a little bit more original? I, I don't know. That's that's specific to Canada and not try to import everything that's progressive. Can we? Can we do that? And then number three, like invest in a communication strategy, Mm -hmm. please. That's what I want. Do you you know what? Here's the thing to bring it around. Do you know what the left needs? It needs a Jason Kenney. Like who is going to who's gonna get in a truck or the or or I guess a Prius and drive around The country or the province, right? And build relationships one by one. Sleep on people's couches. Build community locally. That's exactly build, what build needs to be done with, with new Canadians, which Kenny did as immigration minister. Jason Kenny is a model uh, in, in form, I think, that someone on the left needs. Now, I thought that's what Jagmeet Singh was meant to be doing in the year that he I wasn't thought in so the house. too. I don't know what the hell he was doing. I, I thought so too. No evidence that he did anything. But but the so, thing is, like exactly I don't, I don't what you're talking about is exactly. Thank you. Yeah. You just validated my own ideas. Yeah, well, well you're, you're right. Well, like, the, this is exactly, I'm like, you need to go, like, when I say go door knocking, I'm like, go to every fucking house on the yeah. block. Yeah. And you, you're you not there to sell them anything. You're there to just fucking listen. Mm-hmm. When I went door knocking this, this summer um, for the municipal election, I learned, I was like, holy shit. People will just want to be listened to. Yeah. Yes. I mean, they want to be heard and they want to be, they want some sort of value out of their relationship. They want a relationship yeah. with their elected officials, not necessarily come in and have coffee relationship, but at least know I exist and know I have this issue. Mm-hmm. That's not what's happening. No. And so, um, so I think that that's what progressive and that's what on the right that they yeah. are good at doing. Yes, they are true. good at doing that. They are good at emailing you back and yeah. saying, yeah, we heard you. Um, we're, we'll get back to you. Look at, Whatever. Look at Ford. He gives us, you know, this is the old Ford. Uh, they, Rob Ford would return every phone call. Doug Ford gives people his cell phone number. I mean, people like that. Right? Yeah. And, and, and Kenny doesn't wear Tom Ford custom made suits. But he knows everybody's name and he gets elected. So you know, uh, a we little, do love ourselves a top board. Like <laughs> you know, I, look, I, I get you. I, am, I get you. I, I say this as someone who's tuck shopping right now. <laughs> <laughs> But it's not going to be me you doing this. You can't go wrong with Tom Ford, I know, I sir. You know, my <laughs> boss fits me really good off the rack. Really, that's impressive. But, anyway, well, that's my shape. But yeah. I mean, but but this is why you know, I look, I, I look, I'm a progressive. I'm a social democrat. But I would love sing to be doing what Jason Kenney did rather than riding a bike around and wearing I think this is touching on sort of a fundamental problem, I think, in progressive politics, which is that progressive politics seem to me to have become the politics of relatively affluent, relatively urban people. Um, And I, I think we saw this a little bit when there was that, um, that strike in Newfoundland maybe. And, and, oh, and the union was like doxing, um, uh, scabs and it was this whole thing. And it, 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 sh- it, to me showed this like major disconnect between how the working class used to operate and 
and what progressive politics is now. Um, and I think Jagmeet Singh is a pretty good example of what sort of this new left looks like and it's rich downtown bicycle riding. And I think the left has sort of given the working class away other than the unionized working class, which is arguably not even in working class anymore because they make so much money. Um, they have given they have given the working class to the right. Um, and I think that has been a tactical error on the left. And I don't think the language exists right now to to bring that back because the people who traditionally might have been uh sort of working class left-wing voters you know don't want to listen to a guy in a tom ford suit they want to listen to a guy who they feel is like them and that is maybe that jason kenny is not like them but uh you know he's convinced people otherwise and, and has pulled off this gambit yeah i i think the left also got very institutionalized and that has hurt them too, a lot. Um, like, even if you look at unions today, they're very much a bureaucracy. And so um, so the effectiveness and the agility required just isn't there. Yeah. And I mean, a, a decent example of that, I think, is like Gil McGowan and the, and the – I'm blanking on what union he represents here in Alberta – but big NDP kind of union, but Alberta has like a really low unionization rate and like 25% maybe. And then 75% of all union workers are public sector workers, teachers and nurses and whatever. And like, I mean, people don't look on in Alberta anyways, you know, unionized workers as, you know, allies are part of the same class. They are, they are the people that get a raise every year for inflation and they've got really good benefits and a pension. And these are all things that quote unquote normal people um, might not get or struggle to get or work really hard to attain. And, and I think, and everyone's also worked a unionized job where some lazy schmuck has, has been protected by the yeah. union or young talented people have been laid off because of the first in last out rules and things like that. So, mm-hmm. I, I'm not. I mean, I'm no no expert on union politics, but I think that is that is a, a factor in in the strength of the left as well. Yeah, um, yeah. They got a little bloated. <laughs> I mean, sorry. Hello, love you unions, really, but you got a little bloated and bureaucratic and immobile. <laughs> They've reached middle age. They. Oh my gosh, that's exactly yeah, it. Unions have reached middle age. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think we should be doubling down and. and on unions, but reimagining um, how they might interact with, with workers. I agree. Uh, you know, I unions totally are essential agree. to protect from management, but it's true. I mean, it, it is a matter of, of saying, well, you know, uh, do you understand the contemporary workforce, mm-hmm. which I think mm-hmm. unions are also struggling in a world of increased, you know, gigification to fit in. And so I'm seeing efforts to try to figure that out. And so I have a lot of hope that unions will be able to organize around sort of the gig economy in productive ways. I think of Uber, for instance. Yes. You know, and ride sharing more generally. Well, they're already which, starting to unionize in America, yes. which I find very interesting. Yeah. And there's an opportunity there, though, to, to rebuild you. the union movement. Right? Yeah. And I, I, yeah. Right? Yeah. I feel like this is a great time to build. I, I absolutely agree. You know, for the new generation. Yeah. Unfortunately, the people making those decisions are middle age. Yeah. Well, they won't be around forever. Yeah, that's true. All right. So um, thank you, Tyler. We're going to let you go. 
And um, up next, we'll talk about the Democratic primary. All right. So that does it for this week's Bad and Bitchy. Um, I want to thank our guest, David Mosscroft, who sat in with us very patiently today and didn't even bitch about the time. Find us, Bad and Bitchy, on Twitter at Bad and Bitchy, IG, Instagram at Bad and Bitchy Pod, Facebook forward slash Bad and B Podcast, and email us badandbpod at gmail.com. We have merch at Redbubble, redbubble.com forward slash people forward slash Bad and Bitchy. All right, everybody. Are you ready, David? Because you got to say bye with me. Okay, one, two, three. Bye. 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 My bitch is bad and bullshit. <laughs>